We're going to be in Acts chapter 13, if you would. Please open up to Acts chapter 13. And so this morning we are making our way back into the book of Acts. Last four weeks we were in a series on the church. We were answering the question, what is the church and how are we to live in light of our identity as the church or the people of God? And now we come back to the book of Acts, and we're going to pick up right where we had left off. Uh, By way of a short recap, so Acts chapter 13, by way of a short recap, we've seen that the gospel has now gone to the Gentiles. First, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now into the ends of the earth, or to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, God gave Peter a vision. He sent him to Caesarea, to a Roman centurion named Cornelius, if you remember. And Cornelius, a Gentile, he believed on the Lord Jesus, and so did his friends and family that were gathered there whom Peter preached to. And this was a pivotal time for the early church, as they realized, and as they said amongst themselves, God has also granted repentance that leads to life to the Gentiles. That's good news for us, right? Most of us here aren't Jewish, are we? So good news for us of what was taking place there in Acts chapter 10. And then we also saw in Acts chapter 11... Uh, that there were many Gentile converts now that were coming to the faith. And it was there in Antioch, Antioch of Syria, that the believers were first called Christians. So first called Christians at that time. And then Barnabas was sent to Antioch from Jerusalem to see the work that God was doing there in Antioch, all these Gentiles coming to the faith. And the work was so fruitful that Barnabas, he went and recruited the apostle Paul, or Saul, We'll we'll see that name interchangeably. He went and recruited the Apostle Paul from Tarsus to join him in the work that was taking place in Antioch. In Acts chapter 12, James, the brother of John, is the first apostle that was put to death for his faith. We've already seen Stephen martyred. And then the first apostle was James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. He was put to death by Herod. And Peter was then also arrested, but God divinely intervened and he delivered him from prison. Hopefully we're kind of remembering where we were at, right? So God delivers Peter from prison. And then Luke records for us that this same Herod who had killed Peter, or I'm sorry, who had killed James, was struck down by the Lord for not giving glory to God in a speech that he had given. And one could say that Luke was basically pointing out that just judgment from God had come upon Herod for taking the life of James. Finally, in Acts chapter 12, we're told that Barnabas and Saul, that they returned from uh, returned to Antioch from Jerusalem. They had made a trip to Jerusalem. They were de- delivering a gift to the church in Jerusalem from Antioch since there was a severe famine in the land. And it tells us that John Mark accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their return trip to Antioch. So it's basically they go to Jerusalem, dropped off, drop off the gift, John Mark is there in Jerusalem, and then he comes back with them into Antioch. And that's important because we're going to see John Mark in uh, a little role here in Acts chapter 13. So this is where the story picks up. And here in chapter 13, we have what we commonly call Paul's first missionary journey. Most of us, we kind of heard that terminology before, Paul's missionary journeys. And we're going to see his first one here in chapter 13. There are three main missionary journeys that the Apostle Paul takes. And remember that by this time, Paul has already preached in Damascus, he has preached in Jerusalem, and he has been preaching in his hometown of Tarsus. 
So he has uh, labored also with Barnabas in Antioch. Barnabas went and got Saul or the Apostle Paul there in Antioch, and so they've done a lot of laboring there. So both Paul then, both Paul and Barnabas, they're seasoned witnesses of the gospel, and God is going to use them mightily in their mission work together. And this is what we're going to see take place really through the rest of the book of Acts, honestly. We're going to see kind of the Apostle Paul take center stage. So in one sense, the first half of the book is kind of like it's following the the early church, but the kind of the main leading figure is the Apostle Peter. And now from the second half of the book of Acts, the main leading figure, it's still following the work of the church, but the main leading figure is going to be the Apostle Paul. All right, so we'll notice this together. So let's then see here in Acts chapter 13 uh, how this all comes about. It says there in verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, or Paul, right? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, this doesn't seem like the uh, modern way of sending missionaries out today, does it? And I think, though, the relative ease by which they were able to send them demonstrates why the gospel spread so rapidly through the Roman Empire. In Antioch, as we can tell here, it has an abundance of spiritually gifted teachers and prophets. There's five of them listed here, right? And Barnabas is probably mentioned first because he was the one who was sent by the apostles in Jerusalem to Antioch. And these other three men, we don't know too much about them, but uh, clearly they were prominent leaders there in the church of Antioch. Uh, Most of them all probably Gentiles themselves, and so that's why they witnessed to all the Gentiles in Antioch and saw many conversions by them. And Mannion, it says about this, this character, Mannion was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this Herod is Herod Antipas. There's many Herods mentioned in the Bible. We kind of have to make sure we know which one we're talking about here. And Herod Herod Antipas is the one who ruled Galilee and Perea as a tetrarch from 4 B.C. to A.D. 39. Now, this is the same Herod who had John the Baptist killed. This is the same Herod that Jesus stood before, and he sent him back to Pilate, if you, you recall the gospel story there. So Luke is telling us here of Mannion's friendship with Herod because basically he's pointing out how influential that Christianity had become. And so it's even getting into the nobility that people in not just the poor in one sense are responding to the gospel, but even those who are in positions of authority are also responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think it's interesting to point out here that even though God was doing a great work in Antioch, what does it tell us that the disciples were doing here? Well, they were still committing themselves to prayer and to fasting, right? They didn't let their success distract them from spiritual diligence, right? So you think, wow, God's working, God's doing great things. What should we do? Let's pray. Let's fast. Let's seek the Lord. In fact, I think it's their success that made them all the more dependent upon God, This is a good little application lesson for us, right? We see God working and moving in our church. Now is not the time to kind of rest on our laurels in one sense. But now the time is to press in further and to pray and to fast and to seek after God. You know, in one sense, you have to 
you, you need God more to be able to handle the work of success. If God's adding to the numbers constantly, and many Gentiles are coming to the faith, it's like, Lord, how will we take care of them? We need your power. We need your help. And so they were praying, and they were seeking after God through fasting. And as these prophets and teachers then were carrying out their ministry there in the church, it says that the Holy Spirit made His will known to them. Now this was probably through inspired prophecy from one of these men, prophets and teachers, so no doubt one of them speaks forth from the Lord and says that God is setting apart Barnabas and Saul. So God was setting them apart for the work that he had called them. And after this time of prayer and fasting, they laid their hands on them and it says they sent them off. Now the church in Antioch, right, they didn't really have a choice in the matter of whether they were going to send them off or not. (laughs) Neither did Paul or Barnabas, did they? Since God had spoken on the matter. And we see their their honor and their fear of the Lord. God had taken their two most prominent leaders and said, yeah, yeah, you don't need them anymore. I need them for my task. And they let them go and they send them out. And it tells us, right, they were, they're not just being sent out by the leaders only, but they're being sent out by the whole church. And it was to the whole church that they made their report when they are going to return back from Antioch. We'll see that later on in the book of Acts. So God has special plans for Paul and Barnabas, as we're going to see. What are those plans? Here we go, verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. This is the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean. Most of our most are probably familiar with that. You can see this on a map. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. This is John Mark. John Mark, Barnabas' cousin, and he is most likely the author of the Gospel of Mark. That's this John Mark. So the first place in Cyprus where they preached was Salamis, a Greek city on the east coast of the island, and the administrative center of eastern Cyprus. Uh, It doesn't tell us too much of what's going on here in terms of success. But the Jewish community was apparently very large to have, it says, synagogues, right? They go into the synagogues of Salamis. So there's more than one. And the practice of presenting the Christian message first to the Jews of each city that they visited, this would be a regular feature of Barnabas and Paul's ministry to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. (coughs) So Paul prioritized this in his ministry. Uh, As I said, we're not told of their success, but Luke wants to get us to some significant action later on. So he goes on in verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, this is the island of Cyprus, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. That means son of Jesus, right? Uh, not, not Jesus was a common name back then, Yeshua or Joshua, a very common name, but uh, it's not surprising in one sense that Luke is pointing out this is a false Jesus in one sense is what he's trying to get at. And so here then, early on in the missionary journey, they meet opposition, opposition, right? And also Paphos, that the place where they're at now, this was the seat of the provincial government in Cyprus on the southwest coast. It is here that they're going to run into what is called the proconsul. And the proconsul was the highest Roman official in Cyprus. Uh, Basically, it's kind of like uh, those who were in Judea. Remember, they were under Pontius Pilate. He was the highest Roman official. He had the power to execute people. Well, 
the Roman Empire, they had their proconsuls or people like Pilate dispersed, uh, dispersed throughout the Roman Empire who were the overseers of those areas of land. So the proconsul, he is the overseer of Cyprus, and he has the power and the ability to execute people if he so chooses, right? And so we, we're told here that the magician Bar-Jesus, or Elimus, which we'll see his name is, he's apparently friendly with the proconsul. All right. So it says in verse 7, he, Bar-Jesus, right, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. And what does he do, this man of intelligence? Who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So Barnabas and Saul were making such an impact in Cyprus that the proconsul himself summons them. I need an audience with these two men, basically. Right? So he calls them to himself. And it seems that he was genuinely seeking to hear the word of God. So this is excellent. A high Roman official of high intellect is interested in the gospel. However, this magician friend, he can't let him go so easily. I think he understands. If he starts to believe, a, become a follower of Jesus Christ, well then I lose my great position with him, doesn't he? Right? So he wants to get in the way of what God is doing here. It says in verse 8, But Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Oh, I wonder how Paul's going to respond to this, right? Verse, verse 9, But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Not necessarily the way most people would respond to opposition towards the gospel, right? But what you have here is Sergius Paulus, a man who is interested in the gospel, and then another man who is trying to prevent him from hearing this gospel. Elimus is not simply opposing Paul and Barnabas. He is opposing God himself. So Paul has no problem calling him out for who he really is. A son of the devil, an enemy of all, unrighte- of all righteousness. And it's kind of like this, this play out. Uh, it's kind of, uh, he, he, he's bar Jesus, right? Son of Jesus. But Paul is basically pointing out, you're not a son of Jesus. You're really a son of the devil. So Elimus is a deceiver. And all deceivers come from the evil one. Remember, Peter confronted a magician in Samaria. And here, Paul's confronting a magician in Cyprus. So Luke calls him a false prophet. Not in the sense that he foretold things that didn't come to pass. Maybe they did come to pass. But in the sense that he claimed falsely to be a medium of divine revelation. He claimed to be of God, but truly he was of the evil one. So we should expect then that any authentic gospel proclamation will always result with opposition with opposition so you know if we're faithful to share the word then we can be assured that you know the enemy is going to be faithful in one sense to bring opposition against the word so we ought to be prepared right this is why we need to be strong in our faith however here in this case right god is going to triumph over the opposition with divine judgment is what we'll see verse 11 and now behold paul goes on to say the hand of the lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, 
and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So the proconsul, right, Sergius Paulus, he was impressed by their teaching, and then he sees the power of God in action, right? So Elimus, no doubt, had shown him the power of the enemy, but now Sergius Paulus gets to see the power of God overcoming the power of the enemy. It's kind of like Moses standing before Pharaoh, and his snake eats the snakes of the other um, of the other magicians. So Sergius Paulus then believes their teaching. God won, the enemy zero, right? Now these are some of the special plans that God had ordained for Paul and Barnabas. Um, and of course there's going to be many more. So verse 13, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pam- Pamphylia. This is Asia Minor. And John left them, John Mark, and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on there, went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now we're not told why John Mark deserted them. Maybe it was the opposition or it was the travels that was just too much for them uh, for him. Maybe it was due to his cousin Barnabas, who was now taking the second position behind Paul. You know, one can observe that Luke now mentions Paul's name first, as we see in verse 13. Uh, earlier before this, it's been Barnabas's name who has been mentioned first. But now Paul is taking the leading position. Why is that? Most likely just because in action, in one sense, Paul is kind of constantly taking the first position. Not so much because he's trying to get ahead of Barnabas in one sense, but because God is just using him in this way, right? So Barnabas humbles himself and takes the second position in the relationship. Maybe John Mark wasn't able to humble himself and, and take the second position himself. We don't know. Whatever the, reason, whatever the reason is, we know John Mark heads back to Jerusalem, which was his hometown, remember? He's not from Antioch in Syria. He goes back to Jerusalem. Now, the Antioch in Pisidia here, this is where they're at now, this is not the same Antioch of Syria uh, that they were sent out from. So this is a different Antioch. They were, back in those days, you know, there were different cities that had the exact same names all throughout the Roman Empire. You know, it's it's funny because uh, you've heard of the city of Alexandria, right? Now, there are many Alexandrias. Why? Because Alexander the Great, he really loved himself. So he wanted to call a lot of cities Alexandria. So this is kind of the idea. There's a lot of cities with the same names, and so it's you know important to kind of keep that in mind as you're reading through. All right, so it goes on to say then, and on the Sabbath day, they, this is now just Paul and Barnabas, because John Mark has left them, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Remember, first going to the Jewish synagogue, that was their custom. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, kind of like when Peter stood up at Pentecost, right? You kind of get the same idea. And motioning with his hand said, so Paul is about to speak. And here Luke is going to record for us a portion of Paul's sermon or his address. This is probably similar to the message Paul would preach in all of the synagogues that he went into. And so this is, you know, very insightful for us to study. We're not going to have the time now to thoroughly break it down uh, since we're going through the whole chapter, but there's a lot that we can learn from this, Paul's teaching here. And you will see some similarities between this message and Stephen's message in Acts chapter 7, the same message that got Stephen killed, 
We're going to see, of course, that Paul, through his message, he's also going to receive opposition as well. So Paul has something important to share with these Jews in Antioch of Pisidia, and he's going to share it authoritatively. So he says then, Men of Israel and you who fear God, and these are probably Gentile proselytes, the men who fear God. So men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And when with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you, speaking of Christ. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. In other words, Jesus is risen, he's not going to die again. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. God did not allow Jesus' body to corrupt in the tomb, for he raised it unto life. And he goes on to say in verse 36, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Jesus is greater than David, is what he's communicating, right? Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. 
And this is probably just a little short synopsis of the Apostle Paul's message there that day in the synagogue of the Jews. Right? So, what is Paul doing here? Well, he's clearly laying out for them who Jesus is. He begins first by briefly recounting the history of Israel. This is demonstrating to the Jews that Paul's message is not in opposition to the Hebrew Scriptures, but that his message is in fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures. Then he speaks of Jesus as the son of David. The Jews were awaiting a Davidic king, the Messiah. He goes on to call Jesus a Savior. And he also points out that John the Baptist also bore witness to him. And basically, all the Jews perceive John to be a prophet. So the Old Testament testifies to Jesus, Paul says, and John the Baptist also testifies to Jesus as well. Then Paul tells them that this message of salvation has been sent to them. Right? So if Jesus is the Messiah, well, why was he killed? You know, this is a great question to ask. Why was he killed then? Paul explains that it was because the rulers in Jerusalem did not understand the writings of the prophets which were read every Sabbath, which was being read to them that Sabbath as well, wasn't it? So the religious leaders were spiritually blind, and even though Jesus was innocent, as Paul says, they had him crucified still by the hands of Pilate. No matter, because God raised him from the dead. Then Jesus appeared to his disciples, and now they are his witnesses to the people of Israel and to the nations at large. And this is the same good news, Paul says, that Paul and Barnabas then are bringing to them. One can tell through this address how often Paul emphasizes that all these things were done in accordance with the Scriptures, in accordance with the Scriptures. For example, he points out how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Psalms that he quotes. Paul wants it to be clear that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to them, and that everyone who believes, he says, is freed. Jesus said it himself, right? Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And amazingly, right, this same message, it's true today, right? This is the same message of salvation that we bring to people as well. The same message that Paul was bringing, the same message that Jesus was bringing, is the same message, the same privilege that we have to share with other people as well. That, what is that message? That through the man, Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, and everyone who believes in him is freed. Freed from the domain of darkness, freed from the power of sin. We proclaim this truth, that forgiveness of sins is found in Christ and in Christ alone. We do not, now this is going to sound shocking, but I'll explain, right? We do not need to ask people to pray a sinner's prayer. You will not find one of those in the Bible. What do you mean you don't ask people to pray a sinner's prayer? Well, we call people to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We proclaim that forgiveness of sin is found in Him, and then we call people then to believe on that. Not in one sense, not to say that they can't pray, but we're calling them to believe the truth that we're proclaiming. Does that make sense? It's kind of like presenting any truth to somebody. You present a truth claim to somebody and you call on them to believe it. And that's exactly what we're doing with the gospel. In Christ, forgiveness of sins and eternal life is found. Believe upon that. We call people, believe that. Exactly what I just said. In Christ, forgiveness of sins and eternal life is found. Believe upon that. 
Now they may say, well, why do I need that and all kinds of other things, right? Um, and of course, we can explain that then to them. But we're calling them to believe upon a truth. We call people to believe in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. Why do they need to believe in Jesus? Because there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Because without the forgiveness of sins, they will fall under the righteous judgment of God. Every person will either be saved by Jesus Christ or will be judged by Jesus Christ at the final judgment. Jesus says so himself in John chapter 5, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, all who have died, will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So there is really only one wise option for any of us today, right? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Believe that Jesus paid the penalty of your sins at the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago and that three days later he rose again. You don't have to go out and do any righteous work. That's the good news, right? You don't have to travel to Jerusalem and climb up countless steps on your knees. You don't have to perform anything in order to inherit salvation. You just have to believe. You have to have faith that Jesus paid your debt through a costly sacrifice, his only life he gave up. Anyone or uh, anyone who is or who will ever be saved is saved through faith. That's what the Apostle Paul says, right? For, I have grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not by your works, lest anyone should boast. One more thing to all of us who even are believers in Jesus Christ, right? We all have doubts at times of our own salvation, and the enemy likes to come and to tempt us and to tempt us that, oh, are you really saved? Do you really believe? You know? And so we want to, of course, we want to prepare our minds against those attacks. And in your times of doubting, I'm going to ask you to not do something, right? Please don't repeatedly ask Jesus into your heart. Now, that may sound strange to some of you, right? But I will explain. See, I used to do this as a young person myself all the time. I feared my, for my salvation, so I would lay on my bed at night and I would continually ask Jesus into my heart. I would continually ask Jesus, please, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Please, Lord, forgive me of my sins. But all of this, uh, but all that that ever really demonstrated was that I lacked faith. It all, the only thing that it ever demonstrated that I lacked faith, that Jesus had already done it and accomplished it. Does that make sense? Right? I didn't need to ask God if he could forgive me over and over again for my salvation I needed to believe that he did forgive me through the work of the cross. Believe that he already did it at the cross of Calvary. Don't demand and ask, God, can you forgive me? Can you forgive me? It almost kind of doesn't, it doesn't acknowledge the cross. No, he has done it. He has accomplished it. Just believe it. See, this is faith. When a person doubts their salvation and keeps asking Jesus to forgive them, they are not acknowledging his sufficient work at the cross. Jesus said himself, it is finished. He accomplished it. He, pro he provided salvation. We do not need to ask Jesus if he can do it. We need to believe Jesus that he has done it. This is faith. Okay, finally, Paul warns those who are listening not to be unbelieving, but believing. 
The same thing that I'm doing here, right? Don't be unbelieving. Be believing. Believe what he has done. So verse 42 says, And they went out, or as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So they're hungry for more of this great truth. And Paul's message elicited great interest, so much so that they want him to come back the next week. Verse 43, And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, Gentile proselytes, they followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So many of the hearers followed Paul and Barnabas, and they showed themselves favorably uh, favorably disposed to the message here. So Paul and Barnabas encouraged them to continue in this mind, to persevere in this joyful response to the grace which God had extended to them, right, through the gospel. So now then, in Antioch and Pisidia, there are many who received Paul and Barnabas' message. And this is going to set up for a large gathering the next week, right? So you can imagine all these people who do believe, and Paul is coming back the next week. What are they going to do? They're going to go and tell all their friends. you got to come. This great message of salvation is being preached. you got to come listen to it. And so with the gospel advancing, though, can we expect there to be opposition? There's going to be opposition as well, right? Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's amazing, isn't it, right? Almost the entire city comes. We have to hear this amazing message. During the following week, the Gentiles who had heard Paul's address, they spread the news through the city at such a good rate and purpose that on next Sabbath, a great crowd of Gentiles turned up at the synagogue. Verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Why? Gentiles are in our Jewish synagogue. And instead of rejoicing, they are jealous, right? They were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So accusing him, probably accusing him as a false teacher, right? As a false prophet. So many Jews, according to the story, Right? They, they did welcome the gospel, as Paul proclaimed it, the previous Sabbath. But the majority, and especially their leaders, had no use for a salvation which was open to the Gentiles on the same terms as the Jews. It was just this that aroused their opposition. You're saying they can share in the same salvation that we have? No way, right? No way. So they oppose Paul. Verse 46 And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Paul and Barnabas, they give a straightforward answer to to this opposition. It was right and proper, they affirmed, that Jews should have the first opportunity of hearing and believing the good news. But if they showed themselves unworthy of the gift by declining to accept it, there were others who would appreciate it. It would be offered directly to the Gentiles. In fact, Paul and Barnabas said that God had made them, right, Paul and Barnabas, a light for the Gentiles, that they may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. God had chosen them as instruments for the gospel to the Gentiles. And of course, 
God has chosen us as well as instruments for the gospel to the Gentiles. And it, was all, it has always been in the plans of God to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Places like England and America, right? Think about it from that context. England, America, that's the ends of the earth. God, it was always in God's plan that people in this country and people in countries like Australia and South America would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And of course, God has accomplished that great work, hasn't he? And he's continuing to accomplish it. So verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing uh, and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Uh, notice that, right? There's a big contrast between the way many of the Jews responded and many in the way the Gentiles responded, right? Many of the Jews responded with opposition and jealousy. How are the Gentiles responding? Glorifying and praising God. Thank you, Lord, for this great, amazing gift on offer. And verse 49, And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout men of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So obviously God did an amazing work there in Antioch and Pisidia. Many Jews, but even more Gentiles, believe the word of the Lord. But once again, opposition comes. This time, not by the hand of a magician, but by the hand of the Jews. And if you think about that magician guy, Elimus, right? He was also a Jew as well. Um, An unfortunate theme running here. And so when opposition comes, Paul and Barnabas, they have to leave this area now. And Jesus taught his disciples, if we remember in the Gospels, to shake the dust off their feet as a form of judgment to those who did not receive their message. And so here we see Paul and Barnabas doing the same. Amazingly, though, right? Amazingly, this passage ends with Luke saying that the disciples, that the disciples who are now in Antioch and Pisidia, all these new converts, it says that they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They were not complaining right, that their two missionaries had to leave and departed. Think about it, right? These two guys bring the gospel to them. Now they're being kicked out, but how do they respond? They're still full of joy, full of joy, full of the Holy Spirit. They were too excited for the salvation that God had brought to them. They understood their great great salvation, and for that, they could be filled with joy. Brothers and sisters, when we come to truly and to spiritually understand our great salvation, we also, we will be filled with joy. When we understand what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, there is no doubt that you will be filled with joy. Paul said it this way, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and joy and peace. Righteousness, joy, and peace. Pray that God would give you spiritual understanding of your salvation, and I guarantee that your heart will be filled with joy. Next week, we shall continue our adventures with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Let's pray.